You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. And today we have our friend A.J. Swoboda here from the West Coast. So we are very excited, and Twitter most simply says it. Uh, For those of you that are visiting, we want you to learn a little bit more about our friends. So Pastor A.J. Swoboda is a Christian. He's a husband to his wife, Quinn. He's a father to Elliot. He is a pastor, a writer. He is a professor at Northwest Christian University. Uh, He's an author. His most recent book is Subversive Sabbath. He's also the director of a wild doctoral program. And that is around the Holy Spirit and leadership at Fuller Seminary, where he directs that. And we are very excited to hear what the Lord has laid on his heart. And for the next few minutes, I want to provoke within you uh, a a new way of thinking about life. Uh, Exodus 3, this is the story of Moses. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this very strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. God says, don't don't come any closer. Take off your shoes, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into the land good and of spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, and I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is the name, his name? What shall I tell them? And God told Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. Uh, This is the word of God. Would you say amen? Amen. 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 This morning, I want to introduce you to a concept that the Bible talks about consistently. Um, I want to tell you about a friend of mine. I have a 
uh, a friend who was raised, uh, Oregonian, raised in a, he was raised in a cult. And this particular cult that he was a part of uh, never allowed him to eat bacon, which I think is the mark of a cult, actually. Um, I, isn't that the mark? I think that on the thing, that's like the mark of a cult is, is no bacon allowed. He uh, was raised in this particular cult, and he'd never in his entire adult life ever tried bacon before. And when he was 40 years old, he met Jesus. And he was no longer bound by these strict ethics of non-bacon eating. And he was at a restaurant with his family, and he said, I'm 45 years old, I've never had bacon before. And he tells the story. He's sitting in the restaurant, and he says, throw me a couple pieces of bacon. And they bring some bacon to him, and he puts it in his mouth, and the way he tells it is just brilliant. He says, I put the bacon in my mouth, and one small tear (laughs) came down my face as I knew what I'd lived without for 45 years. (laughs) Bacon is an argument for the existence of God. Is it not? Is Is it not? You don't know how good something is until you've tried it. And this morning, I wanna offer something to you that is so good that some of you have never tried. A few years ago, I uh, read about this fascinating statistic about World War II and Vietnam. Um, I have four, by the way, four grandparents, grandfathers that served in, in, the world, in World War II. Uh, my gran- one of my grandfathers, Grandpa Tex, actually the week before Pearl Harbor, uh, uh, when uh, the, the, uh, the islands of Hawaii were, were bombed and America was forced into this, into this war, uh, my grandfather was actually uh, uh, drafted into the NBA to play for the Chicago Bulls the week before Pearl Harbor. And when the war began, he had to decide, do I wanna go to war uh, and fight for my country or do I live my dream? And my grandpa, as so many in his generation did, gave up their dreams. My grandpas all went and fought for our country in World War II. When you look at World War II and you compare it to Vietnam, these were two very different wars. In World War II, uh, when the men went and fought and defeated the Third Reich and the Nazis and Hitler was, uh, was, was undone. And when the men came back, uh, our culture was enamored. It was, our, our culture was uh, euphoric. We, we, it was right because we had, we had destroyed evil. Like darkness had been, had been killed and, and light had shined and the Third Reich had been brought down. And so when the men came back, uh, our culture was euphoric, right? What, suicide rates, super low. PTSD rates, super low. Uh, drug abuse, super low. Spousal abuse, super low. Uh, it was such a euphoric time that when the men came back from World War II, we have a whole generation of people named after that happiness. They're called baby boomers. The men came back, they just had a bunch of kids. It was a very happy time. (laughs) But when you compare that to Vietnam, it was a very different story because after Vietnam, when the men came back, it's a very different story. Uh, Super high suicide rates super high PTSD rates, super high heroin epidemic, uh, 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 spousal abuse, horrible. I mean, it's just, it was an absolutely different, a different experience. And both wars were horrible, so what was the difference between these two wars? 
There is one thing that's different between World War II and Vietnam. They were both horrible experiences, but the one difference is this. When Vietnam ended, the men left fighting the Viet Cong, in Viet, they, they left fighting in, the, in the, 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 the fields of Vietnam, and they, they flew home. Imagine this. They flew home and were back in their living rooms within two days. They went from killing to holding their babies in two days. Can you imagine that? Whereas in World War II, it was a very different experience. When the war ended, the men didn't get on planes and fly home. They didn't have that many planes. So how'd they get home? The men literally got on boats and sat as my grandpas did for two months in the middle of the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean. They had two months. Well, what do you do for two months? You cry. You weep. You tell your story. You grieve. You, you feel. And the men who fought in Vietnam never got that chance. They never got to process anything. They just had to rush home. They never had a chance to decompress, whereas in World War II, we did. Something, friends, about that story, that, that, is, that is like a metaphor for our time. We don't have any time anymore to just process, do we? I mean, we don't, we don't have any time to just think, to just stop and think about what is happening. Uh, Netflix, by the way, just came out with their mission statement, and you'll be pleased to know that Netflix's entire purpose in life is to protect you from boredom. Andrew Sullivan, who's a writer for The New Yorker, he wrote this piece a couple years ago. He's got a fascinating story. Andrew Sullivan is a, a very well-known New York writer. He writes for The New Yorker, The New York Magazine, New York Times. Very well-known writer. And Andrew Sullivan, a few years ago, was famous for this. He was the guy who kind of invented blogging. Do you remember that? That was a thing like 10 years ago. And so when he started blogging, Andrew Sullivan, he blogged on average something like 13 blog articles a day. And a few years ago, he completely burned out. He just completely burned out. And Andrew Sullivan, for, for a period of time, just decided, I'm just gonna leave. I'm gonna leave the internet. And he left. And everybody wondered where he went. Where did Andrew Sullivan go? The interesting thing about Andrew Sullivan is before he left, he, he sort of was, he, he didn't like Christianity. He wrote a, a lot of stuff, negative stuff about Christianity. But all of a sudden, when Andrew Sullivan come back after took, taking a hiatus from the internet, coming back from the silence, all of a sudden, Andrew Sullivan started writing about God a lot. And when he came back, he wrote an article called I Used to Be a Human Being, and it's about distraction sickness, how we're constantly distracted by everything. And the last paragraph of that article, he says this. Understand this. I mean, this is just, he's throwing us a softball. He says, I wonder, quote, I wonder if the Christians could come to understand that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism, it is distraction. And if they did, then they might begin to appeal again to a new frazzled digital generation. Christian leaders seem to think that they need more distraction to counter the distraction. Their services have degenerated into emotional spasms. Their space is drowned with light and noise, locked shut throughout the day, when their darkness and silence might actually be the thing whose minds and souls who are web-weary desperately need. 
I, I've lived for the last 10 years in Portland. I've seen distraction absolutely kill us. Uh, by the way, a whole generation, I love Portland, but one of the things about Portland that, that you, you notice is that Portland is, ever, everything is about justice in Portland. And that's awesome. I love that Portland cares about justice. But when you live in Portland long enough, you begin to realize that w- when you live in a justice-oriented city, everybody's kind of exhausted of justice. There's, I call it justice exhaustion. Because friends, honestly, it's exhausting not knowing what stuff you're supposed to be really mad about this week. <laughs> like, am I supposed to be mad about this or that? I, I can't, no, and you're just exhausted. We're distracted from all of, the, all of these things. Going, we're constantly being distracted. What do I need to give my attention to? What do I, hey, if you had this experience, you turn your phone off. Some of you have never done that. Practice that sometime but you turn your phone off, it's in your pocket, and it's off, it's dead, there's no life in it, and you still feel it ring? You know, they have a name for it, it's called phantom ring, and what's happening, literally, is that we have become so distracted and addicted to distraction that when our phones are off, our bodies and our brains create distraction to remind us of our addiction. Some of you have never tasted being present anywhere. We are addicted to distraction. In this particular story that we read this morning, the story of Moses, Moses, the text says, is tending his flocks. He works out in the fields. He cares for the animals. And one day, as he's walking through the fields, he comes to a bush. The bush is talking to him. Have any of you ever spoken to a burning bush? There's a reason you haven't. We have hotlines for people that talk to burning bushes. You don't talk to burning bushes. We, we create retention reports in our universities. If somebody says, I've been speaking to a burning bush, we have concern. If somebody came into a church that I pastored and said, I've been talking to a burning bush, I'm calling the hotlines. That's a weird thing to do. The fact that God speaks to Moses through a burning bush, by the way, says a great deal about God's nature. It says that God, it appears, actually has the capacity to speak through just about anything. I mean, if he can speak through a burning bush, he can speak through, well, just about anything. And so as Moses walks by, there's a voice in the bush, and the voice says to him, Moses, Moses. God, by the way, does that a lot. He always repeats people's names. I wonder if he has to repeat people's people's names because sometimes one doesn't do enough. Moses, Moses, he has to say it two times. And then the voice says to Moses, I'm a messenger of the Lord. And he he says, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to confront Pharaoh. I want you to stand against the forces of evil and oppression. I want you to stand against him. And then God says, the voice says, not only is this a messenger of the Lord, but the second time he says, this is actually God. He says, I'm God. I think that's really interesting. Immediately, we see that first, this is a messenger of the Lord, and then it says, this is the Lord. I actually think this is one of the first images of Jesus in the entire Bible that the message is the messenger and the messenger is the message, that Jesus is the one being sent. But in this moment, we see God's voice, and then God gives him his name. In Hebrew, El-Yeh, Asher, El-Yeh, I am who I am. There's kind of, by the way, a little, it almost feels passive aggressive because the, the name, it's as though God is saying, I'm gonna give you a name, but don't even think you can define me by my name. I am who I am. 
My name transcends your categories and your words. Richard Baxter, who's a Puritan theologian, once said that if it fits in a spoon, it can't be the ocean. And his point is, if you think you fully understand God, it ain't God. And so God says, I am who I am. And Moses stops and talks to a bush. This is our hero in the faith. Here's my theory. Had Moses had a smartphone, Exodus 3 would have never happened. He would have just kept walking. By the way, the rabbis who have taught on this story for thousands of years still to this day teach that Moses was not the first guy to hear the burning bush. Moses was just the first guy who was willing to stop and talk to a burning bush. The rabbis actually teach that God spoke to a bunch of people. They just kept walking because this is what they were doing, just walking with their smartphones. There's a burning bush, and what are they doing? They're just walking by. I don't have time for that. I'm, I'm killing Fortnite right now. I just kept walking by. But Moses stops. Moses stops. God, friends, God uses Moses. If they're, they're the baseline qualifications for being used by God in this story are one thing, that you can stop and watch. That's it. By the way, there's another story in the New Testament that blows my mind. After the Holy Spirit falls on the church in Acts 2, Immediately, the next story in the Bible, Peter is walking through Jerusalem and he comes across a beggar who's been on the side of the road. He's seen him thousands of times. Peter had seen him time and time and time and time again. But this time, he walks by and he sees the guy on the side of the road and he looks at him and he says, hey, look at us. Which is a weird thing to say to somebody in need. Hey, look at us. Look at us. Apparently he's from New Jersey or something, but look at us. And the guy looks up at Peter, and you remember this story, he says, Peter says, silver or gold I don't have, but what I give you in the name of Jesus I give you. And he says he helps him up, and, he, and, and the guy jumps and he leaps with joy, he's, he's healed. The point of that story, friends, is that when you've been filled by the power of the Holy Spirit, you begin to see the things that God sees. You start walking by people that you've walked by a billion times and you see them and you go, I see you now. In fact, the fact that Peter says, look at us, is evidence to me. Why would you say that? He said it for one reason. That guy was so used to not being looked at, Peter needed him to know that somebody saw him. Friends, when you walk with Jesus Christ, when you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, you start seeing stuff you never saw before. You're attentive to stuff. By the way, there's a whole, literally a whole cottage industry of people who are writing right now on what's called attention loss in our culture. Basically what they're telling us is in, people don't have ADD, our whole culture has ADD is that we all are completely unable to give attention to anything. What they're finding, I mean, these are just some of the big ideas. By the way, uh, multitasking, you think you can do it? You can't. Cognitive scientists, psycho psychologists are telling us it's not an actual thing. You cannot multitask. The human brain cannot multitask. You can task switch. You can go from doing one thing to another, but you can't multitask. It's an absolute myth. We've come up with this idea to make it look like we're productive. 
We're not productive. Multitasking is a complete lift, um, a complete myth. Um, one of the writers that I was reading who writes on attention, he says, we've become so attentionally promiscuous that we just throw our attention to any little thing that throws us its attention. We become a culture of clickbait. We just follow the thing that grabs our attention. And the cost is, as Cal Newport writes, who's a writer who talks a lot about uh, work and, and attention, he says that we no longer have deep attention. We no longer know how to give attention to the important things. We give little snippets of our time to things. The average amount of time that an undergraduate student in America takes in of content a week is 15 minutes worth of content. We're distracted, crazy distracted. Have you ever been to, have you been to a restaurant recently? I took my son, my eight-year-old boy recently to Red Robin. Now it used to be a Red Robin that you would just have the screens on the, the walls, and I appreciated that. Now they've put them on the table. You've got your own screen on the table. I watched a family next to us, a family of five, for a whole hour, a family of five, all of the fam- they all had phones. Not one of them talked for an hour. My heart was broken. We don't sit and talk to each other anymore. In fact, I've noticed with my students at the school I teach at, this crazy ability, students can now text under the table. <laughs> it's terrifying, and be accurate. I had a student send me an email during class under the table without a mistake in it. It was just perfect with emoticons. (laughs) This is affecting all of us. We're not present anywhere we go anymore. And friends, I'm gonna argue that this is absolutely harming our faith in God. Friends, there's a whole generation of young people who are deconstructing their faith and pulling their faith apart because they have really big, awesome questions about God and the Bible, questions about sexuality, questions about justice, questions about the nature of humanity. We've got these profound questions. The problem isn't that we have good questions. The problem is we don't have time to sit around and think about them. We become like Pilate when he encounters Jesus, and Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? He's talking to truth. And he says, what is truth? And then Jesus, as immediately as Pilate says, what is truth, Pilate turns around to the crowd. Pilate asks the question, he just didn't have time for the answer. It's called social media. We have all the time in the world for questions, but we don't have any time to just sit. That's the crazy thing about Jesus. When, when you look at Jesus, Jesus is always watching stuff. You notice this, in Mark 12, he's watching the people as they put their money uh, in the temple, uh, temple offering. John 4, Jesus sits at a, a well. He watches as a woman comes by. Peter is watching. Moses here just has the capacity to stop. And by the way, this is extra credit. I'm not getting paid to tell you this, but here's a theory of mine. Notice that the first thing this story says Moses does is the text says that Moses was tending the flocks before he heard the voice of God. That word tending is a very interesting word in the Bible, and you find this to be the case throughout the Bible, that before people encounter God, very often their occupation and the thing they did before was that they were tending something. Moses tended the flocks. Joseph tended the flocks. 
in e- before Egypt, David tended the flocks, the shepherds tended the flocks before they encountered Jesus, the message that Jesus had been born. The, friends, the, the idea here is that we no longer have the ability to pay attention to anything, and as a result, we don't know how to pay attention to God. Amen. We walk right by the burning bush because our lives have been practiced to not pay attention. What do we do with this? I love reading a guy, Brother Lawrence was the name, he wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God, and he, he, he wrote this whole book because he, he, was, a, he was a monk and he, and, he, and, he, and he washed dishes, and he found that when he washed dishes, that, that Jesus spoke to him. He said, I, I have encountered the God of the pots and the pans. <laughs> and I love that image because you and I have been robbed of something. We have been robbed of something, friends. We have been robbed of the gift of being able to give our attention to something. It is not a mistake that when you turn your iPhone off, it flashes an apple with a bite taken out of it like we're back in the Garden of Eden and we have been eating from the wrong tree this whole time. Friends, we have replaced God's word with knowledge. What do we do? Here's what you're gonna do. Number one, take a day a week and turn your phone off. It's gonna blow your mind. You're gonna be like, am I a human being anymore? And you're going to breathe and eat and sleep and go to the bathroom and you're still going to be a human being. I invite you one day a week, just turn your phone off. And here's what happens when you turn your phone off. You start seeing stuff all over again. You start smelling stuff again. Things taste better. You get your life back. It's like eating bacon for the first time, a small tear. (laughs) Number two, friends, I think that Christians of all people should be the first people who know how to discern that when we are sitting with a human being, that a human being is more important than the screen in our pocket. Friends, people are made in the image of God, not your phone that we have the capacity to say no to the screen and look someone in the eye. I got an email this morning. There was a young student at my institution who attempted suicide last night, and I know there is a direct connection between suicide ideation and the fact that we don't look at each other anymore. Look at each other. God made everybody in this room. God didn't make your phone. He made you. Look at people. They are worthy of your attention. They are God's grandeur sitting right in front of you. I'm ticked this morning. (laughs) Number three, turn off your notifications. It's fine to have a phone, but turn the notifications off. Friends, we are better at keeping up with the Kardashians than we are the Holy Spirit. We're better at keeping up with all the news and the cycle. Friends, what if we were just a little bit behind on the world, but super intimate with the Holy Spirit? you imagine that? Turn your notifications off. That's fine. Carry around the phone in your pocket. Friends, one night a week, here's another idea. One night a week, just one night a week, don't watch Netflix. 
Because here's, here's why. God's presence is binge-worthy too. God's presence is worthy. And friends, I, I'm, all, I'm all into binging. I, when, listen, when Arrested Development came out, my life ended. I get it, I'm not telling you to be done with Netflix, but I am saying that a follower of Jesus should know how to lie in their bed and just binge worthy God's silence. God, your silence is worthy of my time. Just want, try it. You know, I, they told me if you wanna connect with the students, then give a personal story. <laughs> when I was a kid, I remember, my dad was a doctor, he worked 80 hours a week, and I remember my dad, my favorite place to be with my dad was when we were at Disneyland or when we went fishing. And it was not until a couple years ago in counseling that I figured out why I loved those times so much. I loved those times because they were the only times that my dad wasn't on call. I had him to myself. It was just me and dad. And I loved it, man. When I fished with my dad, it was like God was present. My dad wasn't God, but having my dad present, it was like God was with you. When you walk with your dad through Tomorrowland and you know you get him all to yourself. A couple years ago, I took my son for the first time to Disneyland. And we were standing in line at Mr. Toad's wild ride. I hate the ride. He loved it. We're standing in line, and in front of me was a dad and his five-year-old son, and his, his five-year-old son was pulling on his shirt to get his attention. And for five minutes, I watched as this kid pulled on his shirt, and the dad answered emails. And it dawned on me for the first time that we have created a world where we are never on call. When I come home, I'm flying home today, and whenever I come home, I, my son does this thing every single time. He always says to me, when I walk into the room, he always says, when I walk home from work, he always says, Dad, 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 take your shoes off. <laughs> he always does this, it's all the time. Dad, take your shoes off. I'll walk right in there, it's like, say hello first. And he's like, take your shoes off, take your shoes off. And I never got it, I never understood why take your shoes off. And a few weeks ago, I decided, I'm just fed up with this, why? Why do you want me to take my shoes off? I said it nicer than that, but I said, why? <laughs> why do you want me to take the shoes off? And my eight-year-old son said to me, Dad, when you take your shoes off, you have no better place to be. The first thing God says to Moses when Moses encounters him is, take your shoes off. Friends, I love these things, but these just aren't as good as God. And they're not as good as our kids, and they're not as good as our parents. We are being robbed of presence. Turn this off. Be somewhere. Would you stand with me?
God, as I broke my iPad, We come to you, God, and we hear the same words Moses did. Take your shoes off. And we repent of the fact that we are everywhere else but where we are. And we pray in the name of Jesus that you would teach us to be here, to be where we are, and to attend to God's voice. We repent, we love you, and we need your help. For every person in this room who is addicted to their phones, with all grace and mercy, God is absolutely in love with you and doesn't shame you, but he does call you to something else. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and find your rest. Find your rest. In the name of Jesus, we follow you and you alone. We love you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.